Indonesia. What star is that? Yo, this is Adis to the Bishop. You are listening to FarsightTV.com. This is Side Life Radio. This is the Bishop Chronicles. And this episode is unlike the others because this episode is dedicated to the life and death of Juice World. So none of the usual crazy antics that I be doing in the beginning are even in play today. Simple reality is that too many of our children are killing themselves on these opioids. Too many of our kids are dying on drugs. Too many of our kids think that syrup is okay. They think putting Percocets in soda is okay. They're addicted to codeine. They're addicted to promethazine. And because a lot of rap music frames it as a party drug, they don't understand the dangers. You know, when I was young, I, I told you I was a binge drinking alcoholic on the weekends in high school. But I'm from the 80s and I'm from the Burbs. And in the Burbs in the 80s in the Bay, the big deal was having bars in your household. You know what I'm saying? Like having like a mini bar. So we had these bars, you know what I'm saying? And parents would have house parties and stuff like that. So like most houses now, back then, every household had a lot of alcohol in it, but also had that bar, had the mirrors, had the, you know, we had a full bar in my parents' house that had, you know, the mirrors, the lights, and all of that. And so as early as the age of nine, me and a lot of my friends would go around to each other's homes drinking some of the alcohol that was in these bars. Um these kids now do that same similar kind of experimentation, only they, they, they do it with liquid heroin. And they are absolutely dying. They are absolutely becoming addicts. And if you listen to my Mac Miller show, just Google Bishop Chronicles, Mac Miller, listen to that tribute show. I go into great detail about a lot of that activity and a lot of my experience with young people in juvenile hall. There's a lot to it, but the cliff note is when I asked how many kids had experimented with Percocet, Promethazine, Codeine, almost every kid but one raised their hand. None of them are 18. None of these kids were 18. Sometimes you can be in juvie and people can be over 18. That's rare, but it happens. This was not the case. So at the same age, you know, between like, let's say 13, when I really started kind of drinking on the binge thing to 17, right? When I stopped while I was doing alcohol, these kids are doing hardcore opiates. What do you think is going to happen to them? What do you think is going to happen to them? I was clear about that. So let's get through the facts and start kind of having this conversation. And I want you to right now, please take this show. Send it to a teenager. Send it to the parent of a teenager. Even if you're not worried about them, understand that you should be worried. Understand 
that I recently gave a talk about Juice World. And one of the girls came up to me after my talk and said, you know what? You know what's popular um, with like Berkeley white girls? And I was like, what? She was like, powder cocaine is making a comeback. This is what you need to understand. Anyway, share this show, please. And before I go further, I will say that you know me as a as a hip hop dude and a, and a fitness loving dude. You know me as a guy who is gonna teach you about teas like cloud scroll tea. Gonna gonna tell you whatever little thing about probiotics or prebiotics. Listen, if you know a rapper in the Bay, and I consider the Bay from as far south as San Jose all the way up to Sac, right from the Sac town to Bay Area and back down, Cali is with it. Um. If you know a rapper, or if you are a rapper, if you're a graffiti writer, if you're a DJ, if you're a dancer, and you are addicted, and you're an adult, come talk to me, and I will try and help you. I'm not pretending to be like any kind of crazy healer. I'm just telling you, if you come to me, we can keep it private, and I will help you get help. And I will do the best that I can to help you with what I know. But I don't like where America is. I don't like how hip hop is selling its children poison. And people might say, oh, well, it was always doing that. You know what I'm saying? I'd be lying if I said the song Brass Monkey didn't kind of contribute to my delinquency. <laughs> right? Uh, I'd be lying if Run DMC saying they loved Old English didn't make it so that I drank Old English. But these things aren't heroin. And that's the bigger difference. They're not heroin. Young people will always experiment. They will always rebel against whatever's going on in mainstream society. It's part of their phase. It doesn't even matter the society they grow up in. Unless it's a complete totalitarian society where they have no say, no this, no that, or a household where they have no say, no this, no that. They're going to rebel somewhere between 13 and 21 and it doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how loving you are. It doesn't matter what you've provided. As they get to learn more about the world, the world becomes more interesting. And what they grew up in starts to seem more kind of basic. It's not always a thing about ingratitude. They just necessarily don't value it. And they start, well, you know, we grew up suburban, so I want to go to the hood. If you come from the hood, you want to go suburban, right? Like, it don't matter. People just kind of start experimenting, man. All right. But experimenting with opioids always ends in addiction, homelessness type stuff and death, prostitution, stuff like that, stuff we don't need. All right. But if you know a rapper or a hip hop artist or you are a rapper and or a hip hop artist and you're really trying to beat this, I will help you. Follow me at Bishop Chronicles. Send me a message. Be serious. If you're serious, don't waste my time. And I will help you. That's my promise. And I will keep it quiet. That is my promise. So anyway, Gerard Anthony Higgins was known as Juice World. He he's a rapper, huge singer, songwriter, born in Chicago, and he was known for his singles "All Girls Are the Same" and "Lucid Dreams," which uh, got him a recording contract with a guy named Lil Bibby. And Grade A Productions, and that led to Interscope 
and grade A doing a deal, and this dude's freaking huge. One of the scariest things about this kid is that he was born in 1998, same age as my son, man. Same age as my son. Um, he died December 8th. Uh, he was born December 2nd, 1998, and he died December 8th, 2019, okay, at Advocate Christ Medical Center in Oaklawn, Illinois. And so it's really interesting because Revolt TV posted some interesting things about him. Because I'm not going to pretend to be the biggest fan. You know how I learned about him? I knew about him from other kids when I taught at Realm High School, which is now closed. Uh, RIP to Realm High School. Shout out to all my students who was around back then. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But I didn't really, like I heard little tracks here and there and I wasn't paying attention to them. But I told you... Um, when when I went to London, don't forget to listen to the London episodes. Those are dope. Um, I was on the plane and I heard the uh, Hoodie Season album by A Boogie with the hoodie and Juice World was on there. And that's when I started really paying attention to them because I really liked A Boogie and I liked the song that they did together. So um, this guy was important. He was real important. One of the things that Revolt noted was that, you know, and it's so funny how we've always done this in hip hop. If you look at old school hip hop, there was hip hop kind of like before sampling and before sampling, hip hop was replayed disco and soul. A lot of it. I'm talking about in a recording studio. Of course, we had the the break records and stuff like that. When people were recording, if you listen to like the Duck Rock album, Duck Rock by Malcolm McLaren, that was the first whole hip hop album that I had. Um, you know, a lot of live instrumentation, a lot of live piano, a lot of live instrumentation, and a lot of people in hip hop. I'll tell you who's a great, listen, sh long story short, Juice World could play the piano, the guitar, the trumpet, and drums. A lot of times in hip-hop, we get so caught up trying to show how hood we are and trying to show how um, street and trap drummed up that we are that we don't allow ourselves to share our whole musical self with our audience. If, if you're in hip-hop and you play anything, drums, a flute, a triangle, I don't care, blood. You should incorporate that into your hip hop, man. You should, even if you just do it once on one song. The musicality inside hip hop has been around from the beginning. You know who's an amazing pianist? And I saw this with my own eyes. Flavor Flav. Flavor Flav. If you go online and you look up like Hip Hop Chess Federation, Public Enemy, there's a picture of me, Flavor Flav, Chuck, and an old friend of mine. Uh, from back in the day named Arash. And, and, and in that picture, you will see Flav chilling, right? They were filming a video here in Oakland. And Flavor Flav, during the break from the video shoot, got on the piano and played some beautiful classical stuff I can't even name. And I'm, I'm fairly familiar with classical stuff. I don't know what he was playing. I just know he played it fantastically. Juice World could play the piano, okay? And that's a beautiful thing. And I'm sad that we know him for so many aspects of his music, but that we don't know him musically from the music that he liked to play. So if you are in hip-hop and you play an instrument, share that with the world. Anyway, his name, Juice World, came from his love for what and who? Tupac. 
West Side. You already know where I'm going. Now, you probably don't. I don't really know where I'm going either. I'm just saying that I think it's dope that he loved Tupac. He used to call himself Juice the Kid. That was, I guess, his first demo name was Juice the Kid and eventually became Juice World because he loved the movie Juice. Remind me to tell you guys about the Juice party, the movie release party in San Francisco. <laughs> Woo! Crazy. Anyway, um, also, uh, uh, according to the Revolt uh, piece, shout out to Revolt TV, he grew up in a very Christian home that was conservative, and his mom didn't even let him play hip-hop in the house, but then somehow his cousins, because you know hip-hop is always going to find a way, his cousins brought him like music by Chief Keef and all of that, and then he got into it, and then, you know what I'm saying, he just jumped in and changed the planet. Um... Now to the more serious side of this. I'll just be very frank with you. I'm going to tell you something that I can never prove. I'm going to tell you something that I don't think we can ever know. But it's something I absolutely believe. I believe that what we're calling an overdose by Juice World was actually a suicide. I think he did this deliberately. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think Juice World killed himself deliberately, and I'll tell you why. I believe that Juice World was addicted, right? I mean, there was syrup and, and Percocets and like 70 pounds of weed on the plane. And one of the things that people don't like to talk about in hip hop is how many drug gangs and stuff like that be using some of these rappers to move drugs across state lines. This is known, right? It happened a lot. It happens right now. It doesn't happen with every rapper, and I don't want this episode to be used by prosecutors and, you know what I'm saying, uh, dumbass, fake-ass journalists not really being thorough right to 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 blanket statements but some rap artists in the past have been used by drug dealers to move um drugs uh, across state lines and stuff like that 70 pounds of weed i want you to think practically real real quick if you had 70 pounds of weed as much as you might smoke, how long would it take you to smoke 70 pounds? If you smoked every day, how long would it take you to smoke 70 pounds? I don't smoke. But uh, if I did, <laughs> it might take me three years to smoke 70 pounds at least. If I smoked every day as much as I could, that's a lot of weed. All right. There were guns on that plane. There was uh, metal piercing bullets allegedly on that plane. I'm putting allegedly across everything I just said about Juice World and what was on the plane. I'm just telling you what the reports are, what my understanding is. And so I believe that in a world where people like Takashi 69 get labeled a snitch, in a world where Takashi 69 is is he's gonna have a tough life. I don't I don't care about his ten million dollar deal. That dude's got a tough life. Don't get it twisted. 
He paid, bro. Snitching pays. We gonna see. I think you're about to learn. His life still ain't gonna be fun. He's got a better snitching future maybe than like Sammy the Bull. Look up Sammy the Bull. He didn't have a great future. He kind of, he was probably the original Takashi. Meaning like he beat the rap, got out, but he still did a lot of bad stuff in Arizona. He was like selling meth with skinhead gangs in like Arizona or New Mexico. It still didn't end up good for this guy. Because it's about bad decision making. It's not just about snitching. Here's my point. I believe that Juice World killed himself because he didn't want to go to jail and he didn't want to snitch about where all of these drugs came from, who owned these metal piercing bullets and guns. He didn't want to do that time. So he killed himself. That's what I believe. And I might be wrong, and we may never know. But that's what I believe. I believe he killed himself because he didn't want to go to jail and he didn't want to be a snitch. Maybe he thought he could get over. Maybe he thought they would just pump his stomach. I don't know. I find it hard to believe that if someone as intelligent as him wouldn't know this would kill him. I find it hard to believe that someone as intelligent as him wouldn't know what that would mean even for someone who had taken as many drugs as he's taken, I believe he killed himself. I believe Juice World committed suicide, 100%. And this is something we can never know. It's just a theory. But that's what I believe. We don't know what people's intents are. We just have to deal with the after effects, and this is the after effect. And part of this after effect is me reminding you to talk to your kids about drugs. Be honest with your experience with any drug use that you have had, with any abuse of alcohol or, 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 or drugs that you've ever had, because trying to pretend to be a saint doesn't help them understand what the real world is like. You know, sometimes people think it's hypocritical. I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's real. As long as you talk about what you did, why you did, and what your perspectives on it are now, you're being honest, and that's going to create a real bond. And you got to have these conversations without judgment. Like, if, you, if, if you'd be like, yo, look, man, you can just tell me what's going on, you know? Have you ever been drinking? Well, last week I was drinking at the house. What the hell? You was drinking at my house? I will slap you across the street, boy. I will whip you, boy. Like, if you start doing that, your kid's not telling you nothing. So have the adult conversation. Listen with the same open heart and head you would to your best adult friend without judgment. You got to do that. It's hard. But if you want that connectivity and you want that interpersonal growth, you got to do it. So I'm really sorry about what happened. I really do believe it was a suicide. I really do believe he didn't want to be like 6ix9ine and he didn't want to do hella jail time because hella jail time sucks. That's what I believe.
Um, another thing I, 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 you know, and I talked about this on the Mac Miller episode, and I really do encourage you guys to listen to the Mac Miller tribute thing. Cause there's a lot of stuff on there that I think is valuable, but you know, I think, or, you know, I'll tell you what I was told, what I was told, you know, my first political classrooms were on Broadway in, in San Francisco, learning from Kilu Nyasha. And she was a panther, a woman panther who was amazing. Rest in peace, Kilu. God bless you for everything you've ever done for me. Um, you know, she told me and other panthers told me that back in the day before crack, because this would have been like in the late 80s, early 90s when I was meeting with Kilu and taking these classes. Um... And just to be real, some of the other people from that era that were there, Money B from Digital Underground, because his father was a Black Panther. Shout out to Bobby, Bobby McCall. Um, and um, Dell, the funky homo sapien, was a friend of mine that I, and is a friend of mine. What up, Dell? I just ain't seen him in a minute. And... Um, I invited Dell, and Dell used to come to a lot of those meetings. That's true. In fact, if you listen to, I don't remember what episode it is. Anyway, there's an episode, I think it's with Grandmaster Flash, and I put up a, I posted a a, a song with me and Dell. It was like unfinished. It's called What You Know. Um, when me and Dell made that, it was during that time when we were both going to these meetings with Kilu. Anyway, Kilu Nyasha. Rest in peace and stay blessed forever in eternity, queen. Um, she taught that, you know, it, I think she said in the 40s and 50s uh, that the government was trying to flood the hood with heroin, but that black people didn't like needles and it didn't work. But that in the... FBI's attempts to stop the creation of what they called a black messiah, i.e. no Malcolm X, i.e. no Huey Newton, right? No George Jackson, no Jonathan Jackson, right? That they wanted to fill the hood with heroin, but black people didn't like needles, and so when you look today and you look at all the syrup, what you see is that the syrup epidemic today was the dream of the United States government for black people, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. This is what the plan was, to have us strung out on heroin, to have us blown out of the frame. Look at the crack epidemic. Look at the lack of compassion in the crack epi epidemic. And now look at for all of the compassion that people want in the courts for all these white kids strung out on Oxycontin. They don't need jail time. They need love and affection. Yeah, right. How come you wasn't saying that about my homeboy's dad? How come you wasn't saying that about my homeboy's mom? I saw people get their whole lives spun out on crack. Become absent mothers, absent fathers. Nobody had compassion for them then. And this is what white supremacy and racism does in the middle of a drug war. 
Look how the tune changes when it's white kids dying. When it's white girls lost and gone. But, but, but when that was happening with our kids and our families and our cousins, our uncles and our grannies on crack in the 80s, we were just animals, right? We just have to let the law teach us, right? This is a layered conversation, people, when you're talking about drug abuse and addiction in North America. So I told these kids when I was incarcerated, talking to these incarcerated kids, I was just like, look, if you're on syrup and Percocet and all of that right now, you are the dream of the FBI and the CIA. They wanted this for you. They couldn't figure it out. You didn't like needles, so they put it in syrup, and now you're addicted as teenagers. Before you can even drink alcohol, you want the syrup, right? That's their dream. You're living their dream. This is what they wanted for you. So you got to beat it. I said to my son five, six years ago, because I saw the trend in high schools 10 years ago when they would put a little bit of like two teaspoons of syrup in a baby bottle of like baby like Gerber apple juice with the little nipple on it. And they would sell that, man. That's what the kids were doing like 10 years ago. Anybody who's been in the school system 10 years ago, tell me I'm lying. The only way you can tell me I'm lying is if you were asleep or you lying. If you were awake and you know what the kids were doing in school, that's what they was doing. That and ecstasy. So we got to have more compassion for our addicts. And at the same time that we have more compassion for our addicts, we need to be more aggressive with attacking, taxing, and turning upside down all of these predatory companies that make these drugs. Because this isn't as easy to make as crack, man. You need laboratories. You know damn well ain't no black syrup kings. Not because there couldn't be, because they didn't understand the chemicals and, and, the, and, and the components, but because they don't have the access to create what these drugs are and do. Understand, these are corporations killing your children. These kids take Percocets, they break the pills in half, or they grind them up, and they put them in soda. Or they'll just soak the... Percocet pill in a soda and then they'll share that soda as a group after it dissolves. I'm telling you what's happening so you ain't tripping. This is what's happening in your hood, in your city, tonight, today. Believe it. So let's talk some other statistics real quick. Because, you know, a lot of times we like to talk about Illuminati. A lot of times we like to talk about the hidden hand. A lot of times the hand ain't so hidden. Three companies manufacture 88% of the opioids. You hear that? Three companies manufacture 88% of the opioids. One is Spec GX, a subsidiary of Malincrod. Malincrod. Activist Pharma, A-C-T-A-V-I-S, Activist 
Pharma, and PAR, P-A-R, Pharmaceuticals, a subsidiary of Endo Pharmaceuticals. The one you need to be most concerned with, I think at least in North America, is Purdue. Purdue Pharma. The company paid more than $600 million in fines and other payments. They just recently filed for bankruptcy. They are ran, by the way, they, they are blamed for the creation and pressuring of doctors to sell OxyContin. And they fueled the growing epidemic of the narcotic addiction. Okay? They are owned by a billionaire family called Sackler. S-A-C-K-L-E-R. Sackler family. And they own Purdue. Okay? And one of the problems that's happening right now is because these guys have filed for Chapter 11, I think it is, the issue is can all of these families with people who ended up dying in addiction, can they make the Sackler family pay? Because they're just trying to shut down Purdue and be like, oh, we lost our money. But the other thing that they don't talk about is how Purdue created a ton of subsidiaries to also distribute their drugs. Subsidiary companies are smaller companies under the same name, under the same same company technically, but with a different name. This is what I was sharing with some of my students this week. That this is a corporate killing of our children. And that when I tell you and I tell kids to stay sober, it's not really so much of a, I'm better than you and you suck. Oh, you bad person because you are on drugs. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that at some level, when you start doing drugs, you are enabling corporations. On some levels, on the main level, I stay sober because I'm not giving no money to these companies that don't care about me or my children or the well-being of our family or the well-being of this country or the well-being of the world. They don't care. They don't care. And this is where white people need to wake up because Sacklers are white. Sackler family is white and they don't care about kids in Kentucky and they don't care about poor people in Florida, white folks I'm talking about. They don't care about rich families in Maine dying on this. They don't care. So this is even beyond white supremacy. Like white supremacy is a system that's always in action, but this is beyond it because they don't even care at all. Believe it. So now let's get past that. Let's look at something else. When I was young, you know, like I said, people was, you know, drinking a lot, but there was also, you know, there was like, um, um, what the word I'm looking for is. There was alcohol, there was weed, and there was powder cocaine. This was before crack. I'm talking about my life. And, you know, you go to house parties and stuff, and you might see, like, the coolest guy in the school, right? Yeah, man, we're going to go to Jerry's house and have a party, bro. Okay, cool, let's go. And at that time, I was still drinking. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not absolving myself of that. But I'm going to tell you something that I, that I learned really early. And you see the, the most popular girl, yeah! Drink more, man. I need more shots, man. Okay. 
I observed these kids. And all I would do is drink. I didn't do anything else. And other people, sometimes they just drank too, but sometimes they did a little more. Here's my point. When I watched the kids that partied the hardest, the most consistently, I would think about what they knew about them. And I would watch like the popular guy and I'd be like, yeah, he's super popular. He's on the hoop team and everybody thinks he's awesome. But he's drinking like this because his dad beats his ass. Because his dad is intimidated by the fact that his son is getting physically bigger than him and might have a college opportunity. And he's actually sabotaging his son by always trying to compete with him and act like he's cooler than his son. And, and, and he's, mis- he's being misled. The kid's being misled by his dad. And he doesn't understand why his dad doesn't love him the way he used to. So he's overdoing all this activity. Then you look at the girl. Pretty girl. Everybody thinks she's cool. She's trying to be the Barbie of her era. Whatever. But really. Right. Her parents are getting a divorce and she's really depressed. So all of this partying and everything else is her trying to pour vodka all over the pain. Which brings me to my next point. This is why I don't judge people who are addicts. I used to, I don't anymore. Gabor Mate, G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E was taught about this guy from a very dear friend, someone who really cares about me. And my learning about Gabor Mate has helped me understand myself in so many ways. Go online right now, go on YouTube and look this guy up and watch anything. I showed my kids a debate of Gabor Mate and Tucker Carlson on Fox. You have to watch this guy. You have to listen to this guy. Drag this dude from Fox (laughs) with facts. But what he does is he comes in and his whole thing is not that addiction exists, but why? Why does it exist on an emotional level? Why are we in pain? And that leads us to whatever we use, whether it's phone addiction, which I suffer from, whether it is porn, whether it is alcohol, whether it is, uh, you know, sex addiction, whether it is cocaine, crack, heroin, whatever. The addictions are just a manifestation of an emotional pain that we're not addressing. All right. Gabor Mate. Listen to one of his quotes right here. This is from a book he has called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. This is what he says. He says, we see that substance addictions are only one specific form of blind attachment to harmful ways of being, yet we condemn the addict's stubborn refusal to give up something. I'm going to say this wrong. Deleterious to his life or the life of others. Why do we despise, ostracize, and punish the drug addict when as a social collective, we share the same blindness and engage in the same rationalizations? From the same book, he says, At the core of every addiction is an emptiness based on abject fear. The addict dreads and abhors the present moment 
She bends feverishly toward the next time, the moment when her brain, infused with her drug of choice, will briefly experience itself as liberated from the burden of the past and the fear of the future, the two elements that make the present moment intolerable. Many of us resemble the drug addict in our ineffectual efforts to fill the spiritual black hole, the void at the center where we have lost touch with our souls, our spirit, with those sources of meaning and value that are not contingent or fleeting. Our consumerist acquisition, action, and image-mad culture only serves to deepen the hole, leaving us emptier than before. The constant, intrusive, and meaningless mind world that characterizes the way so many of us experience our silent moments is itself a form of addiction. Are you listening to this, man? And it serves the same purpose. One of the main tasks of the mind is to fight or remove the emotional pain, which is one of the reasons for its incessant activity. But all it can ever achieve is to cover it up temporarily. In fact, the harder the mind struggles to get rid of the pain, the greater the pain. Even our 24-7 self-exposure to noise, emails, cell phones, TV, internet, chats, media outlets, music downloads, video games, and non-stop internal and external chatter cannot succeed in drowning out the fearful voices within. That's more from the hungry ghost. In the realm of hungry ghosts, close encounters with addiction. He also has a great book called The Body Says No. In the coming year, we're going to talk a lot more about addiction. We're going to talk a lot more about how to fix our planet, but fix our children in America specifically. We're going to talk about how we can stay sober and authentically happy. Okay? Y'all know, 2018 was a tough year for me. This year was tough, but not as tough. It was much better. 2019 was a great year for me, especially considering everything I had to combat, everything I've overcome. Hashtag unbroken 2019. Hashtag unbroken 2020. We're going to stay unbroken by anybody or anything that tries to overtake us. If we die, we're going to die with our crown on, with our dignity intact. But we're going to die trying and doing our best. This is Bishop Chronicles. This is a special about Juice World. God bless you, man. I didn't know you. I'm very sad. I am very sad about your death. And I don't know your music like I should, but I know how much these kids love you. I know how much they love you. And I know looking at your music in your videos now, because I only knew a few songs, I know how much you love them. And I don't know what your pain was. And I don't know what made you put those Percocets in your mouth, man, but you are missed. I have lost too many people, friends and relatives, Students to drugs. I don't want to miss anymore. I don't want to lose anymore, man. This is painful stuff, man. I'm in pain right now, man. And I even know Juice World, you know. Every generation, every high school, every neighborhood, 
has a juice world, man. And I wish that would stop. Now, before you write off my theory about this juice world suicide, I want you to think about something. This dude was on a plane. As soon as you deal with anything on a plane, you're dealing with moving drugs in and out of state. Okay, go call up an attorney in your area and say, imagine this scenario. Guy on a plane, 70 pounds of weed, metal piercing bullets, two guns, at least, allegedly, right? Uh, Syrup and Percocets on the plane. How many years is that guy going to do? At least. And you come back and tell me now, look at Juice World. He ain't ready to do that time. And I'm not saying he's not a thug. I mean, I think that that's self-obvious. That's self-evident. Okay? What I'm trying to get you to understand is this dude's from Chicago. If you talk about Chicago gang life, what you think is about to happen to your family? Chicago's been killing itself since the 80s, at least. You think he's about to give names up? You think he didn't understand what that was going to mean for his career? You think he didn't understand what that was going to mean for his future as a man, as an artist, for his family if he told, for himself if he didn't? Don't write this off. I'm not saying it's an actual fact. I don't know what happened. I wasn't on the plane. I don't know his mind state at the time. But it's not inconceivable. That he didn't want to go to jail for everything that was on that plane. And he didn't want to tell. Teacher, what star is that? Try with me. <laughs> it's my own secret technique. <laughs>